Kia ora. Ko Matt Mansell, Toku Ingoa. Okay, just let me gather my thoughts. That's not a very good presentation there. It's not very easy to read, is it? Hopefully it'll be easy to read through the thing. Um, so, last, last week I talked about faith and talked from Hebrews about faith and uh, um, felt that... Uh, well, didn't have uh, as much time as had thought I would so we've we agreed that um, I'd speak today and actually what that meant was I got to gloss over the hard bit of the stuff that I was going to talk about so uh, today might be some of the hard stuff but uh, the thing that struck me this morning was that if I'm going to talk about faith I should step out in faith too and so I was praying to the Lord this during the worship and just asked for words of encouragement for people uh, and I think I have a few I, I if um, Please test these. Please uh, test them against scripture, and test them against uh, your, you know, uh, with your um, fan, your Christian whānau. So, um, sorry, I I don't know your name, but uh, I had a word for you. Um, yes, uh, I, I think, and 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 really, it was just that your life is a song, and that as you submit yourself to Jesus that he will make that a song of praise and battle with the power to set captives free. So um, so I just yeah, encourage you to pray, uh, seek, uh, press into Jesus and seek him, and he will bring, this, he'll bring that to pass for you. Lynn, um, I got the radiant presence, like a, like a radiant presence shining in the dark, and in Corinthians it says we are um, transformed from glory to glory. And I think as you seek God's glory, you will reflect God's glory. Uh, and that, that his radiant presence is on you and in you. Um, ben, um, I had a slightly weird picture of um, scripture on your bones. Um, I thought, okay, that's a bit weird. Uh, and I don't, I don't know how much you like reading scripture or anything like that, but I think there's a blessing on you to wrestle with the word of God and that... Uh, through this, you'll be able to see new things in the Lord. So just encourage you to wrestle with Jesus. <laughs> not sure that... Well, yeah. No, now that I say that, I'm not sure I should be encouraging you. No, but I think it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, okay. Sorry, I'm a bit... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, more nervous than usual. I mean, I'm always a bit nervous, but um, just feeling a bit... Okay, all right, let's go. We'll see where we get to. Um, so just a quick recap. Last week, um, talking from Hebrews 11, particularly the start of Hebrews 11, I talked about uh, our faith in God and, and really talked about how what is important about our faith is not that we have it, that, but that what it's in. And that the substance of our faith is uh, is... is is really what's critical. If we have faith in something that's weak, then our faith will only be as strong as the weak thing we have faith in. And then talked about faith in God, based, looking at the, the heroes of faith in Hebrews and, and looking at what they looked for and how they had faith in God as creator, 
faith in God as the covenant keeper, the promise keeper, and faith in God as the city builder in terms of building the city of the new heavens and the new earth. And so, and I finished talking about Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, and that's kind of what I want to press into. Um, I think I need to caveat today's word with, uh, I'm going to be talking about what faith isn't, for some of it, uh, and in some ways that is born out of my own own slow journey of realising um, where I could perhaps uh, recenter myself on Jesus. Okay, uh, so going to jump into a big word, heresy. <laughs> so people people have been grappling with the idea of the divine for uh, well since they've been people. And if you look at uh, the, the philosophies and the religions of the world, they, they tend to swing in one of two directions. The, the, a good example of this happens with the Greeks, right? Ancient Greek philosophy. They really had two views. So the, the gods they had, their pantheon of gods, were they had gods for everything. So they got gods for storms and gods for marriage and gods for... Um, you know, the garden and all that kind of stuff. And so they had this view that the gods were kind of present and in everything and in the world. And then some of the Greek philosophers went, well, that's not really how it is. Actually, the gods are up there somewhere, way up on Mount Olympus. They kind of, kind of hang out up there, accept our sacrifices, but they don't do anything here. And that pattern of either Essentially, God is in the world or is, in, is really near to us or God is completely out there is a pattern you see in human thinking over and over and over again. And the, the dominant human thinking of the West springs from the Enlightenment and it would, you, you could call it secularism. Um, I did come up with, what was it, uh, Western secular techno-progressive uh, liberalism, because I just wanted to throw a whole lot of words at it. But it's this, this idea that, so if, if you look at uh, other philosophies or religions, they tend to have this view that history is cyclic. They tend to have this view that it goes in cycles and it kind of... Um, you know, and, and really it's not necessarily going anywhere. It just goes in cycles. The, the thing that separates Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, because they're all born out of the Torah, is that there's this idea of progression in history, this idea that it starts somewhere and goes somewhere. And I was talking about that last week, right, that Jesus, that God created the world and has this plan to take it through his agents in the world, that would be you and me, to take the world somewhere. And he's building something. And he's, he's, he's going somewhere with it. And so the, the Western secular heresy really is that we can... So that, that idea is that history is going somewhere through the presence of God. And the Western worldview that you get out there right now today is that we have that progression... Right? You get the sort of, and, and, and actually, really today, we have a lot of techno progressivism. Oh, technology is going to save the world. And it's progression without presence. And people want the kingdom without the king. That is the dominant thought 
of our society. Whether people actually say it or not, it's taught in schools, it's advertised to us, it's uh, how our organisations are structured. So, uh, and it's if you look at who we we uh, listen to and pay homage to and all this kind of stuff, it, it's the people who embody this sort of liberal techno-progressivism that is progress without presence. And I think I really like this quote from N.T. Wright's book, Simply Good News, because this kind of encompasses the, the secular progressive approach to Jesus and to God. The first and most important point was not to understand him, God, but to trust him. So this was the first, for the early Christians, that was the thing that was most important for them. They couldn't understand him, but they had to trust him. The idea that you might, be, might begin by looking this God up and down and giving him, a, giving him a cool appraisal, and then if you understand him and approved of him, is to deny the, that he is God at all, and is a route to idolatry, making a God in your own image. The challenging thing for this is that we live in a culture that is steeped in this thought, and that, that thought we, we influences the church. And so we can end up doing the same thing as a church. So there's this idea, the, the, who's seen, I can't even remember the movie. This is Buddy Jesus um, from a movie, I can't remember the movie, it was in the middle of the 90s. Um, it, was a, it was an advertising campaign for a church and they had Buddy Jesus. But, and that's kind of an extreme articulation of it. But actually, in the church, we have this thing where we, it says in scripture that Jesus is our friend, he's the lover of our soul, and we lean into that. And that's great. It's great that we lean into that. But if we lean too far, we start to turn Jesus into our buddy who's there, he's kind of going to support us, he's going, oh yeah, it's okay, bro, you're, all, you're doing all right. And he's not really going to transform us or challenge us. He's our, he's our mate, right? You go to your mates, you complain to them, they might give you some advice, you go, oh yeah, fine, whatever, and you carry on. And we have this thing where we've personalised Jesus so much that we've lost his transcendence. And you see that. You see that in the language of some of the church. And, and we've lost his authority. We've lost his ability to say, no, you shouldn't do that. That is not right. Which, oh, that's great advice, thanks, bro, but I'm going to carry on anyway. The other thing that happens, it's a picture of a big universe like God holding a galaxy, is that we make him, we, we completely other him and we lean into his transcendence we lean into this idea of this possibly angry God who we have to placate to get a ticket to heaven but actually he doesn't really have much to do with what I do when I go to work in the morning and and we we and this is borne out in our actions it's also born there are books that are written about this kind of stuff that propose these kinds of views in various ways but we have this thing where we, we, where we, we either swing, we swing to one way or the other. Now, to put this in absolutely personal terms, one of the reflections I've been having this week is how I do both of these things. During the week, I act like the bottom guy. God is the bottom guy. He's just this person who's out there watching me. 
and that's it. And then I come to church on Sunday and suddenly I'm in Buddy Jesus camp. And it's, it's kind of confronting to actually start to think like that. Am I, by the way I think about him, by the way I worship him, by the way I serve him, by the way I act, by what I do, actually worshipping Jesus or worshipping something I've made in my own image? Let's talk about faith, right? What do I have faith in? Am I building my house on the rock, which would be Jesus, or am I building my house on the sand, which would actually be something I've thought Jesus is, but he's not? In, in that, that passage of scripture, Jesus says, those who hear my words and put them into practice are like the wise builder who built on the rock. And I think this is really challenging for us in our time at the moment. So I want to just take a little bit of a tangent here. I was listening to, a, there's a great podcast, This Cultural Moment, and on it one of the guys, Mark Sayers, talks about research and the basic things required for human flourishing are community, uh, meaning and freedom. And you know, by community, it's, that, it's not just there's some people I hang out with, but it's a sense of real community, a real belonging to, a, to a, a family or a group or whatever. And the meaning is, you know, stuff, meaning like how do I align my life? What am I aligning my life with? Where is the meaning in my life? And freedom is the ability to act uh, and to make decisions. A part of that, the, the Western secularist, Techno-progressive liberalism has really, what we've emphasised in the last 30, 40, 50 years of Western culture is freedom at the expense of everything else. We have pressed into, really deeply pressed into this idea of hyper-freedom, that I am absolutely free to do whatever the heck I want and you can't tell me that I can't do it. And it's reinforced by our culture, by the machines of our culture, because they profit from it. We have this, this idea that I'm, I'm free to do what I want at, without really worrying about anyone else. And the thing is, is this has bled into the church, and then we have this kind of consumer Christianity and and that the and the the breaking down of community uh, in in church, but there's this sense in which we're all this 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 dominant view is that we're all just responsible to ourselves. But if we need to flourish, if we want to flourish, we need to have all three of these things. And if you're in a community, your freedoms are curtailed. If you want to have a sense of meaning, you're aligning yourself with something. By by necessity, you're not aligning yourself with other things. You are curtailing your freedom. And so we get this kind of, just this kind of weird behavior um, and and this, this, this pressure to be individualistic and then people hopping from community to community. I'm not necessarily talking about in the church, although that happens too. You see people going through life going, ah, oh, I'm in this group over here, and then, ah, oh, that didn't quite work, so I'm in this group over here, and I'm in this, and this kind of radical 
um, fracturing of identity and radical fracturing of uh, community so that people can find something they feel that they belong to that doesn't curtail their freedom. So, where is all this going? The hard question. Is the, sub- is the substance of your faith today, you as individuals, us as Capital Vineyard, us as the church, is the substance of your faith a God of your own making? It's a, quite a confronting question. Uh, I have found it quite confronting. You know, James talked about carrying a heavy thing. I feel like I've been carrying this heavy thing for the week, really. Um, and so I've characterized my own terms, new millennium Christianity, how it's imbibed of all these things in our culture. I can pick and choose theology based on my pre-existing worldview. I can go, oh yeah, no, that's good, yeah, that's good, that good, that's good. But actually, I really like um, having an affair, so I'm just going to ignore that bit of theology, right? Or whatever it is, right? So, yeah, I'm all good here and all good here, but I'll just ignore what Jesus says about that. And we see that over and over again. And you see churches forming around a pick-and-mix theology. (laughs) And... uh, or I'm free to do what I want without constraint. And you see churches being destroyed by this because people are entering into relationships because they're free to enter, they think they're free to enter into those relationships despite the, the theology or the community. And, and actually, if you look, oh, I'll get to what scripture says in a second, but, um, but there's this, and this sense in which, well, if, if you're going to tell me something I don't want to hear, then I'll just go somewhere else. I'm not going to grapple with what I don't want to hear in community because it doesn't support my pre-existing worldview. I'll just, oh, fine, I'll find a church that does support my pre-existing worldview. And there's this sense in which those first two things, right? I think I saw this great talk by a woman called Emma Stark. Um, and in it, she talks about how we go to scripture to back up our pre-existing views and to tell God what we think should happen. God doesn't need our advice. God's, God's thing is not how can, he doesn't need our advice. He, his, how is he transforming us? Not how are we changing him. The church must serve my needs. If the community's not doing what I need it to do, then it's, you know, what, what good is it? Um, and you see there are, there are challenges with things like um, in, in churches with getting enough people to do service in the church or people not tithing or people not doing things that serve the church because, oh, well, I, I don't need that. It's my time. It's my money. It's my uh, effort. And the church isn't doing anything for me, so why should I do anything for it? And the other one, and this, this is what you see a lot on the internet. God should back me up and agree with me and support my position. And the, the same woman, Emma Stark, talked about feeling the sense of God's fury at people using the word of God as a proof text to, de- to attack other people. And the word of God is... Let me find it so I don't actually get it wrong. Uh, 
is a Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. So you can go all that bit, right? It's a sharpened sword and it does all this stuff. Judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. And who's, where, is it, where, where, does, where should it start? The thoughts and attitude of my heart. If the sword, if the word of God is not a, a, a alive and active and sharper than any double, double-edged sword in my life, I shouldn't be using it that way to talk to other people. The Bible is not your proof text. So, if you look through the letters, the early Christians, Jesus is the revelation of God and all theology comes from him. He is essentially the living theology. He is the center of everything. And what he says and what he did is what should shape my life and what I do. I'm a slave to Christ. My life is not my own. My freedom is in him. And this is the, this is the thing, right? So we are free in Christ. We are free from sin and death. I mean, that's the, that is the most, the ultimate freedom. But we're slaves to Christ as well. He is our master. He is our king. I think in our desire to, to, to make him personable, which I totally get because I need that. I find it really hard to relate to that other God, right? That, that, that kind of transcendent thing. We have lost the transcendent thing. If you look at the picture of Jesus in the Gospels, he's this people, you know, he, he's the God, he's the God who gets kids to sit in his lap. But you look at him in, in Revelation, and he's the God that comes to judge the world. And he's terrifying. And this is the challenge. We have to, he's both of these things. It's not either or. It's, it's both of these things. I must serve the church. And not just the church. I must serve the people. There's these letters from Roman governors about the Christians. And uh, I think it's in about the 4th century, there's a Roman emperor, Jul- Julianus, I think, who uh, wrote a letter out to all the all the um, the governors in different areas and said, these Christians, they're like feeding the poor and looking after the widow and and doing all this nice stuff for people, nice stuff for people, so they can convert them. So, you guys need to go out and do the same stuff. Go out and feed the poor. I, I command you to do that so that you can work against whatever this thing is that they're doing. Uh, when we went, uh, and we, Natalia and I lived in India for a couple of years, and I remember a decree coming out, uh, we were in Tamil Nadu, about how um, the, the temples should be going out and feeding the poor, exactly the same thing. Christians are going out and feeding the poor and winning converts, so you must go and do it too. So it happens in our day too. But, and Jesus wants to transform me, I should listen to him. So there's a question here about who are we giving authority to. So I can tell you now, we are made for authority. We are made to be in submission to authority. And 
every single human is in some sense under some kind of authority. So who are you giving authority to? Now, I think one of the things that worries me and I've taken uh, is that in a lot of our culture, we've, we've stopped giving authority to people and we've started giving authority to machines. So Facebook is a machine. The person you follow on Facebook, you think, oh yeah, I, I chose to follow them and I know them. The stuff you get from them is not chosen by them. It's intermediated by the machine. There's a great movie that's quite challenging, The Social Dilemma. Uh, in that, there's a quote from one of the guys who did the user experience design for Facebook. I think I might have... I've got a paraphrase of it here, but I'll read it out. I spent eight, eight hours a day working, using everything I knew of psychology and design to make it addictive. And then I'd go home and spend four or five hours addicted to the thing I created. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Don't get me wrong, technology's you know, a, a fine thing. I mean, I work in technology, right? I can't really uh, go, it's all evil. But if you are placing more authority on what Facebook is telling you than what God is telling you through his word, then I think you're in trouble. If you're placing more authority on, um, if I place more authority on uh, what my boss is telling me than on the word of God, then I'm in trouble. It's not to say that I shouldn't also give him authority. Absolutely I should. He has a place of authority in my life. But it should be submitted to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul says, it's, it's part of a, a really... Uh, fascinating piece of scripture about how he about the, his spiritual battle really and clever Matt put lots of bookmarks in but didn't put a bookmark in for that one because I had it written down here so I didn't need to put a bookmark in here uh, so he's talking about his ministry and how, um, how people have said oh when you talk to us in person you're timid but when you write us letters you're bold and stuff like that uh, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought and make it obedient to Christ. If we're truly following Jesus, then he has to be the primary authority in our lives. Man, it's easy for those words to come out of my mouth. And man, it's hard for that to be my life. I mean, I told you about the way, the way I lived my life before, right? Um, and so, but that's, that's, that's where we should, should be going to. His revealed word, his word spoken to us, but that should be compared and tested against his revealed word, right? The individual revelation, the words I spoke at the beginning, should be tested against this. Because if they're not tested against this, they if, if they're in contradiction to this, they really weren't words from God. Sorry for any of you who, you know, who, who, who have come to that realization. Um, so we have to be in this, and, and we have we have to be submitted to Him on His throne as 
King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Creator of the universe. And then, you know, you think about it, like, so, for example, I'm a member of this community. In deciding to join this community, I have uh, placed myself in submission to James's leadership of this community because he's the anointed, the person who's been blessed to be in his and Tess's leadership of this community. They have been blessed to lead this community. So I, I am submitted to them, or I should be. But it's, it goes further than that too, because I actually should be submitted to all of you as well, just as you should be to me. Because my faith is not my own. First of all, my faith is a gift from God. Right? Jesus is the author of my faith. It comes from him. He's the perfecter of my faith. One of the ways he perfects my faith is when I'm, you know, after church sometimes I'm talking with people and someone says things and it just goes boom and it drops in and I'm like, whoa. You, don't, you may not realize this, but God was just speaking through you to me. And my faith uh, is not my own in the sense that it comes from Jesus, but it's also not my own in the sense that part of my faith is yours. And part of your faith is mine. As a family of God, we should be shaping each other's faith and learning from each other and growing with each other. Our faith, you know, we don't, that, that idea of hyper individualism and the sort of consumer Christianity that my faith is this thing and I'm just going to do what I want with it, that's not what I read in the book. So, we are always as fallen humans in danger of making God in our own image or making a God in our own image and worshipping that. Uh, just as a quick aside, the, the thing with um, the mob, right, that, that was often expressed online, right, Facebook and Twitter and all those kinds of things, you see the same thing happening in Scripture. We've been looking at Exodus. Aaron and the 72 elders go up the mountain and have a banquet with Moses and God in the presence of God. And then they come back down the mountain. Moses goes up the mountain to get the, um, the, the, the Ten Commandments, to get the covenant written down. And down the bottom, they, uh, they're going, oh, he's been up there a while. He must be dead. I was talking with James about this, and he was going, they don't even grieve. <laughs> he must be dead. Oh, well, we need to make another God. The 72 elders who were there, up the mountain, and Aaron, what do they do? Do they go, no, 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 hang on. We were just up the mountain 39 days ago. We were in the presence of God. In fact, we can still see him flaming on the mountain. Let's just wait. Do they do that? No, they give in to the mob. Okay, there's like a million of you and you're telling us to do this thing, so okay, we'll do this thing. And then Aaron goes and makes a golden calf. So you can have been in the presence of the Lord and then go and make a God in your own image. But there, so what do we do, right? I feel like this is the hard bit, right? This this is the hard word because I find it challenging. I don't know if anyone else does. Good if you don't, but... uh, So... Where is the narrow path? What do we do? Now, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. 
you look at the early Christians and and the, the culture they were in was this culture that struggled with either God being this or God's being these things that are out there that don't really have any influence that we kind of burn some incense to and just kind of go, okay. Or the gods were really present and dominant in life and they had to be appeased because they weren't happy. And so you have this view. And the early Christians in this, in this time went, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. If we look at Jesus, that is where, that is how we can cleave to the narrow path. So I want to look at Jesus quickly in three different ways. That, so what we do is we place our faith in the resurrected Jesus. As creator. So there's, there's in Jesus, right? So you go, okay, how do we know that the world was created? In Jesus, we see God's... God's uh, so let me back up the truck a little bit. We are in danger when we, when we kind of personify God too much that we start to treat God as an object in his universe but he's not he's outside of his universe but in his and and we are objects in his universe but in his infinite wisdom he condescended and I mean that in the sense of he he descended so con is with he came down to be with us and walk in this world and inhabit it with us And I think that we can see that, right? So one, one of the things you'll get is people go, oh, you know, there can't be a creator of the universe because look at all the evil we see. Look at all the systems of nature where, where animals are eating each other and, and, and all this kind of stuff, all this bad stuff is out there. But in Jesus, in the resurrected Jesus, we, don't, we see God going, you can have all the philosophical answers, all the things that you want. I'm going to come and inhabit your pain and walk with you. And in my resurrection, that is the guarantee that it will all be gone. There's a great song by John Mark McMillan. Um, I'm going to read part of it. Come down from your mountain, your high-rise apartment, and tell me of the God you know who bleeds. And what to tell my daughter when she asks so many questions and I fail to fill her heaviness with peace. Well, I've got no answers for hurt knees or cancers but a saviour who suffers them with me. Singing goodbye Olympus, the heart of my maker, is spread out on the road, the rocks, the weeds. And Aphrodite would not weep, nor Zeus suffer for the weak. But have you come to stand inside my pain? All the things I've begged you for, eternity and evermore, are hidden here, but with, are hidden with me here beneath the rain. So shall I plant sequoias and revel in the soil of a crop I know I'll never live to reap. Then sow my body to my maker and my heart to my saviour, sorry, and spread me on the road, the rocks and the weeds. He was sent into this world to bear all the punishment and the shame and the suffering of sin and to, and to bear the consequence of death. And in his resurrection, those are overcome he has risen and he has overcome. He is, sent, he is the sent one and he sends us. We are the sent ones of the sent one. That's what that song said. Him and his sacrifice, us and our sacrifice. 
So that's what Jesus has done. And we can have faith in that. The Jesus' resurrection is the promise of the overcoming of sin and death. And what he will do, you look in Isaiah and it talks about how there's a, there's a time when God will be all in all. And where his, the knowledge of God will cover the, 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 uh, cover the earth like the seas, uh, the waters over the seas. He promises this time of uh, the, the culmination of what he started back then is this new heaven, this new earth, the city of God, this place of where, there is, where the lion lies down with the lamb, where there are no more tears. And he's the promise keeper. He will do that. But these things can, can sometimes feel quite big. And how, how do we kind of grapple with those? They're joined at the heart by why Jesus did this. In him, we see that the heart of God is love. So God is perfect. God is absolutely perfect. And there's this thing that's bothered philosophers and theologians, is why would a perfect God make an imperfect thing? Because anything that God, you know, God creates something smaller than himself, it's not perfect. And in the theological or atheological or a response to that is that, well, God was so filled with love that he wanted to make something that he could share that love with. So he made the universe and he made us to be the, both the recipients of that love and, the, and, the, and the, the people who would share that love as well. And so at the heart of all of this, the, the transcendent God, the God, the creator of everything, who's out there, who did it all and, and, and is, is terrifying. Right? You, you, when, when that God turns up in scripture, people fall down and, and it's constantly telling people not to be afraid. But he's, he's terrifying. So much bigger and, and more powerful than anything that we can comprehend. And the Jesus who had kids sit on his knee... All of that is born out of his radical, uh, unending, unbreakable, passionate love for each of you and for his creation and for the whole world and all that is in it. And just in case we want to check... 1 John has lots of this. 1 John 3.16. So not John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. Although that one too. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down uh, down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 1 John 14. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me lives in me. 
the, new, the, new, the life I now live, the body I live in faith with the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 5.8. I mean, this is a smattering. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> How do we focus on his love? Both receiving it and reflecting it. I think if you're building the substance on your fa- of your faith on the rock of God's love to you and pressing into the rock of God's love for you, God's love for his creation, and going, how do I receive it and how do I reflect that? Then, then I think you're on pretty solid ground. I just want to, uh, if this looks like this might be running out of batteries, no, it's going good. A couple of quick things. Uh, we can pray for wisdom. James 1.8. I remember when I first became a Christian, I read through, I was reading through the letters and I stumbled, not James 1.8, James 1.5, sorry. I stumbled across this and I went, so James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. And as a new Christian, I went, oh yeah, that sounds pretty good. And so I probably for the first seven, eight years, ten years, I guess, and every now and then since, I've prayed, God, give me wisdom. Please give me wisdom. Um, and I, uh, I credit that with my, a whole bunch of my success. Because there have been times when I've been sitting in meetings at work and people are talking about stuff, and I'm like, oh, please, Lord, give me wisdom. And an idea pops into my head, and I go, okay, but what about blah, blah, blah? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, okay. And people are like, you're, you're smart. I'm like, nah, not really. God is smart. But we can pray for wisdom. If we are, if we are, um, if we're confronted by the, the, the dominant worldviews of our culture and, and don't know how to deal with it, or if we have parents and our kids are confronted with them and don't know how to deal with them, or our friends are confronted with them and don't know how to deal with it, we can pray for wisdom. God gives generously to all who ask. And the thing is, is God's giving generously to all who ask. He's giving generously to this community. So I can also come and ask you. Because you're my whanau, right? You're my family in Christ. And he may have given you wisdom that's not for you, but it's for me. So pray for wisdom. I encourage you to do that. One of the things we often do, and I, I find myself doing this, is I say, I'll oh, pray for our eyes to see and ears to hear what the Lord is doing. Or ask, you know, yeah, I want to see and hear what the Lord is doing. It occurred to me for the first time, and I don't know how long I've been a Christian, I mean, it, it, that I should also be not just asking for eyes to see and ears to hear what the Lord is doing, but also the courage to then go and do it. But yeah, let's ask what he's doing. He, he, is, he is at work in this world. He is at work here right now. He is at work uh, in your home this afternoon or wherever you're staying. He's at work at school or work or home or wherever you are during the week. He is at work in that place. He is active and present in his world, unfolding his plan to go towards that new heaven and that new earth. 
He is in, and, and you are one of the living stones in his temple. Jesus is the cornerstone, right? He is the cornerstone of the temple. When we were praying at the start, I, really, I had this picture um, that, that Jesus is the cornerstone, right? He's this living stone, the cornerstone of the temple, the, the, and the temple of the new heaven and the new earth, the city of God. He's the cornerstone of that. And that we are all being made into stones of that temple. He is building Capital Vineyard into a mighty house of God. He is building the church in Aotearoa into a mighty house of God. He's building the church in the world into a mighty house of God, a place of his presence, a place of his power, a place of his transformation, a place of his resurrection. And he's doing it right now, and, and he's doing it every day in each of you. If you believe in him, he is working out his plans in you. So one of the things that just, uh, um, in our home group we've been reading this book called Surprise the World, and it's the five habits of highly missional people. And it talks about journaling, so the one that we were looking at just last week was um, helping to reshape ourselves around the idea that we are sent, we are sent ones, of the sent one, if that makes sense. And he talks about journaling, and I, I, you know, my 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 journal um, is either either looks like this, right? That's, those are my sermon notes, um, or it's filled with these things where I feel like I failed God, and I'm writing down about. Oh God, I'm so sorry I did this thing. And so it's either my preparation to speak or writing notes on other people's sermons or a sort of journal of how I feel like I failed God. And, but what Michael Frost talks about, um, and I was actually, it's funny, I was praying a few weeks ago and I felt God really convict me of that. Um, he talks about how you should journal. So I'm just going to read this to you. Why do, I want your, why do I want you to journal your experience? So he's talking about your experience of blessing other people, eating with them, listening to God, and learning about Christ. Those are the other habits. Well, as Anne Broyles says, in, in keeping a journal, what our mind is thinking and our hearts, heart is feeling becomes tangible ink on paper. Indeed, journaling is more than just a way of thinking things through. It's a recognized spiritual discipline. More than recording your thoughts, however, I want you to identify the ways you mirrored God's work in justice, reconciliation, beauty, and wholeness in the world. So earlier on he talks about how we, even in small ways, day by day, we can be a vessel of justice or reconciliation or, or beauty and pointing to God, right, in these things. This is more than writing, I shared Christ with someone today, or I treated a confused student kindly today, to all you teachers. Um, it is about helping you to sort through the myriad of everyday ways you operate as God's ambassador in your world. I want you to explore how your commitments to craftsmanship, care, and commerce reflect the things of the kingdom. Journaling has plenty of benefits in itself, but this kind of habitual missional journaling will be helpful in the following ways. Processing events. What you have done during the previous week is only important as the meaning you assign to it. Without stopping to process your actions, you might not see the healing you're 
see that healing your patients, teaching your students, raising your children, or producing nutritious food, or beautiful art, or excellent workmanship are ways you mirror God's work in the world. Journaling helps you sort through your experiences and be intentional about your interpretation of them. It helps you see everyday acts of creativity, diligence, service, and kindness as being legitimately missional acts of evangelism, preaching, and social justice. Making sense of God's work. You're busy, I know. Life is happening so quickly, and most people don't take time to stop and truly reflect on what it really means, what really means the most to us. We get the job done. We complete our required tasks. We put the kids to bed. We try to keep, we try to keep fit. A, a former boss of mine um, said to me, Matt, you've got to stop being a problem hunter. So I will find a problem, fix it, or help people fix it, and then immediately go to the next problem. As he said, you've got to stop. And actually just celebrate that, you, that something got fixed. Enjoy your success for a bit and then go and find the next problem. And it's this, right? I'm just like, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? But when, you, but when do you stop to ask where God is in the midst of your week, your family and your, your leisure time? Journaling forces you to take notice of the way God is unfurling his reign throughout the world through your small contributions on earth. Keep a record of insights. We're all better students when we're taking notes. Writing things down leads to, leads to even greater understanding of the ways God is using you and the clearer vision of what his reign looks like in your world. Write down what you're learning, what you can read, and you can read back through earlier entries and see a pattern of discovery that's been unfolding in your life. Asking important questions. You'll, you'll be surprised how much your journaling takes the form of questions. You'll find yourself writing, was that you, God? Or, I, I loved repairing so-and-so's car today, but was that really an expression of God's work in the world? Or when I said such and such to my colleague, was that you speaking through me, Jesus? The more we journal, the better our, the better our questions become. The better our question, and the better our questions become, the better our answers will be. Feel free to express your feelings, your doubts, your uncertainties. Feelings aren't everything, but they aren't nothing. Pay, try to pay attention to them. They're often an early indicator of the condition of your heart. Yes, if I was paying attention to mine, I wouldn't write those things about ah, oh, you know, my 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 litany of. Failure in my journal because I would have been think I would have caught it, well not caught it earlier but maybe I would have start to see seen a pattern. Journaling helps you get off autopilot and to genuinely focus on what you're feeling about your mission or presence in your workplace or your neighbourhood, and to ask questions about God, His reign, and your place in it. Identifying ourselves differently. People wear fitness monitoring wristbands that record the number of steps they walk, their sleep patterns, their calorie intake. And then they sync those stats wirelessly to their phones or computers and track their overall progress. When you think about it, this is a form of journaling. It's a way of recording your development. It defines you in some meaningful way as a person concerned about your physical fitness. Keeping a journal and recording all the ways you're mirroring God's work in the world is similar. It will start to shape the way you think about yourself. You will eventually come to self-identify as a missionary, a sent one. You'll be looking at your life and how you conduct yourself differently and journaling the process will, be, will reinforce this in creative and useful ways. It's about reshaping our identities around the fundamental calling as sent ones of God. Whoops. So, I just, I've, you know, I've, people say, oh, do you journal and stuff? And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, kind of, sometimes when it's, um, uh, when I've got something to kind of complain about, essentially. Um, but the thing I really like about that is, is by going, how do I journal the ways I see God working in me and in the world? And how do I ask questions about that? Because I may not have seen him working, but then when I sit down to journal, I might think of something. Oh, was, was that you, God? 
So it's actually, it's this thing about looking, getting into a mindset of looking for what God is doing and remembering that. And one of the things I find, actually, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this and then I think we should pray, um, is that I, I'll, I'll, something will happen and I'll kind of go, I'll just cruise through it. And then some hours later or days later, I'll go, hang on. I think God was there and I missed, I missed the bus. But actually, that would be quite a good thing to journal because if I start to recognize those things and go, well, I, actually, I think God was in that and I don't think I quite realized it at the time, maybe the more I do it, the more I'll start to realize those things as they happen. So you may do that already and if you do, that's all great. But for me, I found that just a really practical thing that I can do to be recentering myself on God's love as expressed in the resurrected Jesus what he has done for me and what he's doing in the world. And if, and if that is the substance of my faith, if that is the rock that I'm building on, then, then I think that's, that's a good place to be. Um, did you want to... Oh, so there's one other thing, actually, which I'll just quickly say. There's a, the other thing is just deal with, deal with today. I'm, I'm, uh, I think I might have said this in, in other things. I remember hearing an Olympic swimmer talking about you become a gold medalist by thinking in days and years, not weeks and months. What am I doing today? Not worrying about what I'm doing tomorrow, but I'm heading over there. My goal is over there. And if you read the um, scriptures, there's a proverb, which the number of which escapes me right now, uh, but it's man makes his plans, but God directs his steps. So make your plans, but let God direct your steps each day. Um, and it, it helps to, I find that helps to deal a little bit. We're in an anxiety-laden society, and you can get worried about tomorrow so much. There's so much worry about tomorrow. But actually, what can I do today that helps me to fulfill my place and my, that God's plan in my life? You know, if I'm worried about climate change, maybe I can go and plant a tree. Right? Or if I'm worried about... Um, the poor, maybe I can give a sandwich to a homeless person or something, right? I can do that today. Um, okay, so I uh, think that the God of love would like to meet with each of us today. And I think that there is a place for healing, for freedom, for, uh, as I think, was, I think it was James, the breaking of chains. So if we could all stand. Um, and just wait on the Lord.